Acts chapter number 15. We're at part two this morning. If you remember, as we're studying the life of David, we're in the middle of his ministry, the middle of his, uh, not his ministry, but the middle of his, uh, his life. He's become the king of Israel. And we're in the, what we're looking at is the third major theme of his life as he follows his shepherd. And last week, we saw David with a desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant, to bring the Ark of the Covenant. We focused on the glory of the Lord, and that was part number one. Well, today would be part number two. Now, if you're in First Chronicles, I mentioned to be in chapter number 15, but if you recall, we're also comparing with 2 Samuel. This account is found in both locations. So I'd encourage you to also turn back to 2 Samuel chapter number 6. So I've got a marker in my Bible in both locations, 1 Chronicles 15, and now 2 Samuel chapter number 6. Find your place there. This is three months, three months after the events that occurred in our sermon last week. You remember, how many of you, you watch the, maybe you watch a series on television or on some streaming service, and they, they say, previously on whatever show you're watching, previously, so previously on Following the Shepherd, David desires to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, in, up to Jerusalem. And so we have these, these quick snippets, these quick flashback scenes where David says, hey, all Israel, I've got a great idea. That Ark of the Covenant, we haven't been using it in the worship of the Lord, so let's go get it. Scene flash. Gra- they grab the Ark. They bring it on a brand new cart. They find a brand new cart and they load the Ark of the Covenant. And David has, he says, hey, you and you and you guys, I want you to go in front of the cart. You've got some musical skills. You've got some musical abilities. I want you to go before it, and I want you to lead in songs and lead in celebration. And so we saw this magnificent worship procession moving forward. And in the back is the cart, and the cart is hobbling. It's a new cart, but remember, the suspension wasn't so good. So this cart is shaking and wobbling and back and forth. And Ohio and Uzzah are tasked with transporting the ark in the cart. And as the, as the ark is moving, this tragic thing happens, and Uzzah reaches forth his hand, and as he reaches out his hand, what's he trying to do? Yeah, he wants to steady the ark so it doesn't tip over. But as he does, does that, he violates the command of God in handling his presence. Because remember, the ark of God is symbolic, uh, not just symbolic, but in that, in that dispensation, it was the place where God's glory would come and dwell among his people. And as he touches that, he violates the command of God, and Uzzah dies in that very moment. And so this event that seemed like such a celebration ends with a terrible, terrible tragedy. And we noticed last week that after this happened, you can look with me. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse number 9. It says, and David was, what's the word? Yeah, I'm in 2 Samuel 6, 9, and David was what? Afraid. 
He was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how is this possible? How, how are we going to do this? How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Previously, on Following the Shepherd, now the screen comes up three months later. Well, three months later, the house of Obed-Edom just, God wants to give them a glimpse that, David, yes, you were afraid of me and you should have had a healthy fear of me. You, you went ahead in your own ideas and your own plans, but I want you to know that my plan was never to curse you with this Ark of the Covenant. My plan was never to bring harm into your lives. The whole purpose of the Ark was to bring the presence of God into your life, but it had to be on my terms. And so God gives a a symbol, a sign, and that is he blesses this man's house. And we had a little fun with that last week, talking about the blessing on the house of Obed-Edom. But things have not been any better for Obed-Edom and everything that he has because the presence of God is there with him in the Ark of the Covenant. And now David, and we spoke about this on Wednesday night, David has had some time now to reflect. Remember, we left him in verse 9. In verse number 9, you look at it for me. What was David's state of mind in verse number 9? What is it? I heard it. Some Fear. Fear. He's afraid. But now I want you to notice verse number 12, three months later. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath, what's the word? Bless the house of Obed-Edom. And all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed Edom into the city of David with what's the word now? Gladness. If you if you like to mark in your Bibles, you notice back in verse number nine is the word fear. And then three months later, the, the, the second attempt at bringing the Ark of the Covenant, and the word is now gladness. Last week, as we thought about the glory of the Lord, we, we spoke about and we emphasized the fact that God is holy, and He is to be feared. But now, David has prepared himself and the people for a second attempt. And this time, he's going to make proper preparation to ensure that there is proper worship of the Lord. The fear of the Lord has given way to gladness and celebration. The proper worship of the glory of the Lord will always bring happiness into our lives. I want you to just get that cemented down as we begin this morning. When we approach God on His terms and according to His plan, it's going to bring joy and happiness into the lives of each and every one of us. So we'll talk about that today. Today, if last week is the improper worship of the Lord, this week is the proper worship of the glory of the Lord and the gladness that it brings. Let's ask the Lord's help this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we could never adequately worship you. We could never adequately, or we have no worth in and of ourselves. 
And so this morning, I just pray that as we look at your word and we meditate on your glory once again, I just pray this would all be about you. Not about us, but entirely about you and about you receiving maximum glory through our lives and through our worship. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I got a little ahead of myself in my notes. If you're on the inside page of your notes, just under the introduction, I've got a statement there, and it's, it's worth repeating. And that is that when we speak of the glory of the Lord, we're speaking of His intrinsic worth. That in and of Himself, in His attributes, in who our God is, He is intrinsically worthy. It's just who He is. He's worthy. He's not worthy because of the things He does. He's worthy because of who He is. When we speak of His glory, that's what we're speaking about. We made this statement last week, and we're going to see it. Um, we're going to see it acted out this week. That there could be God is so glorious, He is so worthy that there could be no excessive worship or description of His attributes. Remember, you can't overdo it in explaining how great God is. You can't. You, no, you'll never start talking about how wonderful God is, and somebody say, "Well, I think you might be exaggerating a little bit." It's impossible. But if glory is the realization of who God is, worship is our response to His glory. Ask yourself the question. I, I Don't raise your hand or anything like this, but how many of you gave a thought this morning as you came in, you thought or you prayed, Lord, Help me to worship you today in the proper manner. Help me to come in a way. Help me to understand who you are. May the worship today be not about me, but about you. That's a reminder that each of us needs over and over again. The word worship literally means, what does it mean literally? Bow down. If you read in the Ten Commandments, not to make any graven images, and it says, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. That Hebrew word, bow down thyself, that's literally the same word from which we, that we translate worship from. It means to bow down. And of course, this is not just speaking of what we do in a worship service, but worship speaks of a posture of our life and our action. And that posture is not straight and tall and confident and capable and proud and I can do this. But a true life of worship is a life that has a spiritual posture that's bowed down. That's humble. It's a recognition of my unworthiness in relation to his great worth. And so now as David prepares the people and he prepares himself, that's what we see our first point. If you journey over now to 1 Chronicles, we're going to see this preparation for worship. David, this, this passage gives us a great description of that. So in 1 Chronicles, look at chapter 15. And again, this is parallel to what we just read in 2 Samuel. So in chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles, verse number 1, And David made him houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. Now look at verse 2. Three months later, Then David said, 
Let's read it together. Ready? None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. But the Levites. The, the statement here is no one carries, no one carries the ark of God except the Levites. What had David taken time to do in these three months? Well, I'd submit to you that he took some time to go back to the law of the Lord and to read when, well, you know, when God gave this ark to Moses, I wonder exactly what he said. And so David goes back, well, he doesn't turn pages, but he unrolls the scrolls and he goes back and he looks and he says, oh yeah, I don't even think he had to look. I think he just knew. So you know what? It's the Levites. And in this preparation for worship, the first thing he says here is no one is going to carry this ark but the Levites. Why? Because it says in the middle part of verse number two, for them hath the Lord chosen. Hath who chosen? The Lord chosen. The Lord chosen. Who gets to decide who carries the ark? The Lord. It's his decision. It's the Lord. And I notice this, that as we prepare for worship, and as David prepares for worship, his first consideration, and in our lives, in our worship, and how that, and how that demonstrates itself all throughout our lives, first consideration must be, first consideration must always be, how does the Lord want to be worshiped? Right? How does the Lord want to be worshiped? What is his desire? Not what are my preferences or how do I want it to be, but what does the Lord want? And there's a few things that we'll see, but it has to begin with the supremacy of his worth. There has to be a moment, all moments, all throughout our lives where we stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not about me and how I think things ought to be done. But first consideration is given to the Lord. His worth is supreme. Secondly, I notice that there is a submission to the Word. Submission to the Word. You know, there are many Christians who have lots of opinions about lots of things. But let us also always be very careful as we listen to somebody and their opinion and what they have to say about the Christian life, how much Bible are they using in their explanation? Right? Where's the Scripture? Where's the Scripture in their opinion? Where's the Scripture? When, listen, we had a good... As part of what we do in our life groups um, as we meet in the different life groups, it's not really a lesson or a sermon, it's a discussion. And we'll take some Scripture and a principle and we'll talk about it. We may even use... Uh, some, some groups are looking through a book and they're, they're getting insights from a Christian writer, just like a, a preacher or a teacher... But as we share our opinions, the validity of our opinion or what we say or what we share is really 100% relative to what scriptural principle are we basing this opinion on, right? What does the Bible say? What does God's Word say? And I'd encourage you in every aspect of your life, how do the the scriptures inform the way that you're living your life? And David now, he had an idea before that he was going to carry the, the ark his way, and now he is recognizing it's not about me, it's about God, and it's really about what does his word say. So now look, let's continue. What happens next? Verse 3. 
Now, for the second time, David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord unto his place, which he had prepared for it. And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites of the sons of Kohath. Now, we're reading in Chronicles. The purpose of Chronicles is to give us an accounting, a numbering, a chronicling of what took place. That's why you see more detail in the book of uh, in the books of Chronicles. So now he gives us exactly what happens. Now I want you to notice this. He assembled, verse 4, the children of Aaron and the Levites. The significance here is the children of Aaron are the priestly line. The Levites are the entire extended family. They each had a part in the worship of the Lord and in leading the people in worship. Verse 5, of the sons of Kohath. There's different families in this Levitical tribe. The sons of Kohath, Uriel, the chief, and his brethren, 120. Of the sons of Merari, Asiah, the chief, and his brethren, 220. Of the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and his brethren, 130. Of the sons of Elizaphan, Shemaiah, the chief, and his brethren, 200. Of the sons of Hebron, Eliel, the chief, and his brethren, fourscore. Of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab, the chief, and his brethren, a hundred and twelve. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, and Joel, Shemaiah, and Eliel, and Aminadab, and said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Next statement, read it together with me. What's he say? Sanctify yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Both ye and your brethren, that ye may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because ye did not this at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. We've seen the supremacy of his worth, their submission to the word, and then notice thirdly here, the sanctification of the worshiper. The sanctification of the worshiper. We've boiled it down now to one tribe of people and to specific families in those tribes. And these are the the Levitical families, the families in the tribe of Levi. Now, I don't know if you were counting... But did anybody count how many there were there? You see, I've got a note a little bit later on. We have a procession of 862 men of the tribe of Levi. 862 in this preparing for this grand worship parade. Of these 862 men, the command is given for all of them to go and to sanctify themselves, to prepare for the worship. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Levitical law and throughout, there were ceremonial washings that often would take place. And you could go back, and we're not going to turn to those passages, but you could look at the passage where before before the priests of the Levites were to go on their work in, in worshiping, they were to stop. They were to take clean water, and they were to wash their entire bodies and clean themselves. Of course, they didn't have 
running water like we do now. Bathing was not the, they didn't have, let's just say they didn't have the same customs as we do about all of that. But when it came to worship, they stopped and they cleansed themselves. But it was not, the ritual was not just, this is not primarily a hygienic ritual. It's a ritual to express the importance of what they're about to do. That they're coming before a holy God and that they had to be clean. Now, in the New Testament, I could have given you this reference, you and I are to sanctify ourselves. But it's not with water. It's with what the Scripture calls the washing of water by the Word. This cleansing is not just for Old Testament priests and their rituals, but this cleansing is for you and I as we prepare our hearts to worship. And this is something that, Really, we really should be doing on a daily or even more frequent, more frequently. But especially as we come, I would say as we come to the, the preparation of worship as a church together, we need to, it's not so much about, you know, washing yourselves and putting clean clothes on. It's about letting the word of God and the truth of God wash your heart and wash your soul as you prepare yourself to come into his presence. Again, it's it's far more than it's far more than just a Sunday gathering. It's as we come to him in prayer, as we give recognition and worth, we are constantly in our lives allowing the word of God, the truths of God's word, to wash us and cleanse us and to sanctify us. As we prepare for worship, he is supreme. We're submitted to his word, and then you and I, we must come with clean hearts. We must come clean before Him. Well, as all of these preparations are made, we move into the worship procession. And this is, this is really a magnificent scene. Look what happens. Pick it up with me now in verse number 15. In verse 15. So they've done this. They've washed. They're ready. In verse 15, And the children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders, with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord. So they, they've got it. They're lined up. The staves are through those, those corner rings, and there's Levites in the front, front right. I guess it would be front right, <laughs> front left, rear left, rear right. And now they're marching forward as God had commanded them, not touching the ark, but simply bearing, holding the staves and walking forward. And now around that, there are 862 Levites. Now, if you can turn there, great. If not, I'll put the scripture on the screen. There's a quick description. There's details in 1 Chronicles. There's a quick description back in 2 Samuel 6. Look at what, would, look at what happened. 2 Samuel 6.13. And it was so, 2 Samuel 6.13. I don't know if you have that, that scripture or not, but I'm over in 2 Samuel now. If, I'll just read it for you. It was so that when they that bear the ark of the, law, the Lord had gone, count it, one, two, three, four, five, six. Six steps. At the sixth step, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. Now, the ephod would be a priestly garment. So he's not wearing the, the exact ephod that the priests would wear, but as the anointed king, he wants to demonstrate worship to the people. And as the king, he has a worship ephod that he's wearing. 
He's laid aside all of his kingly robes and all of his kingly garments, and he simply wears this linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. So six steps, and there's a sacrifice, and a song, and a shouting, and a trumpet, and David dancing uh, before the ark of the Lord. And then another six steps. And this procession must have lasted hours and hours as they, move, as they move toward the place that David has prepared. You'll see more of what's going on here in 1 Chronicles, uh, in verse 15. 1 Chronicles 15 and verse 15. The children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves. Thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord, and David spake to the chief of the Levites, to appoint their brethren to be the singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and of his brethren, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brethren, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them their brethren of the second degree, Zechariah, Ben, and Jeaziel, and Shemaramoth, and Jehiel, and Uni, Eliab, and Benaiah, and Messiah, and Mattathiah, and Eliphalah, and Mikneah, and Obed-Edom, and Jael, the porters. So the singers, you're like, why are you reading all their names? Well, if your name was written in the Bible, wouldn't you want people to read it? All right, here we go. So the singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan were appointed to sound with symbols of brass, and Zechariah, and Aziel, and Shemaramoth, and Jehiel, and Unai, and Eliab, and Me- I lost my place. I lost my place. Look at this. Uh, let's look at the end of verse 21. This is, a, this is an important statement. So we had Obed-Edom again, and Jael, and Azaziah with harp. So sorry, all you Old Testament guys in heaven whose names I skipped over. Now, on the Sheminith to what? Excel. And Chaniah, chief of the Levites, was for song. He instructed about the song because he was, what's it say? Skillful. And Berechiah and Elkanah were doorkeepers for the ark. And Shebaniah and Jehoshaphat and Nethaniel and Amasiah and Zechariah and Benaiah and Eleazar the priest did blow with the trumpets before the ark of God. And Obed and Jehiah were doorkeepers for the ark. So David... And the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. It's a joyous celebration. 862 people in charge. Wow, that must have been a group to wrangle. But this person's in charge of this, and you've got the singers over here, and you've got the trumpets. What do we do? What do we do? You get the doors. You You guys get the doors. And then you've got priests for the sacrifices that they're making. You notice this, and I, and I think this is, this is worth noticing here. There is a variety of expression in the worship. Do you see that? That there's a place for each people. There's, there's variety. There's a variety of musical instruments. There's a variety of actions that people are taking in their worship of the Lord. You and I, we can get, sometimes I think we can get so focused on how we've always done it or what we always do or this is the way. Aren't you thankful that God desires the variety and the gifts and the difference of all different types of people? 
And he uses them here. And he gives them a place to worship because God wants to be worshipped. God desires to be worshipped. All kinds of instruments and all kinds of shouting and, and trumpets. There's a variety of expression. But did you also notice that there were God-glorifying gifts that were used? You see a couple of times it mentioned that this person did this because they were what? They were skillful. They had this ability. God also desires our very best. You believe that? I mean, he's worthy. Now, that, that doesn't mean that, that we all have to be, I don't know the best way to describe it, but I would say this, anything worth doing for the Lord is worth doing to our very, very best. You believe that? That whatever we do, our worship ought not to be, in its expression, our worship ought never to be half-hearted. When we come in, if you come in to sing, now, some have more skillful abilities than others, but regardless of the ability of expression, it ought to be done that is the very, very best that we have to offer. Now, of course, the, 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 God's not looking out like a, it's not some like America's got talent kind of a thing. What it is, is God sees the heart of the worshiper. It's not so much about the outward ability, though that is important, but God knows when we bring to him our very best or he gets second place. And they, they were just, they were, they, like a, all I can think of is an athlete in the championship game with a minute to go, tie ball game, and the coach says, leave it on the floor, guys. Do we worship God with those kinds of hearts? Well, obviously, we come short often. But let this be a reminder to us that He is, he is worthy. There's a variety of expressions. There's God-glorifying gifts. Notice also there's a humility in the worship. David, he's, he, he leads them, but he doesn't lead them. He's not wearing the coolest, fanciest, kingly garment, is he? He could, have, he could have had the most impressive clothes on for everyone to see. He could have marched. But as he marched, what was David as the worship leader, as the worship leader, what, where did David want the people's focus to be? On him, on God, not on him. Not on himself, but on God, on the Lord. So rather than wear his kingly vestures, he strips down to a simple linen ephod says in verse 25, So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And it came to pass, when God helped the Levites that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that they offered seven bullocks and seven rams. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen and all the Levites that bear the ark and the singers and Chaniah, the master of the song, with the singers. David also had on him an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the cornet and with trumps and with cymbals, making a noise with psalteries and harps. Now look at verse 29 as we think about David humbling himself here. Verse 29, and it came to pass, it came to pass as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David. David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, Looked, looking out at a window, saw King David dancing and playing 
and she what? Despised him in her heart. Now, you'd have to, we don't, we're, we're going to run out of time, so you'd have to compare this to first, or to second Samuel to understand the real root of her displeasure. What she says is this. Basically, she says this to David later on. She says, you out there in that linen ephod, dancing and playing before all the people, you have embarrassed yourself as king. All the maidens saw that. You've embarrassed yourself and you've embarrassed me. She says, that was not, her heart is, that was not a very kingly action for you to take. And because of this, they, the Scripture seems to indicate that David and Michael, although they remain married, they, they no longer have relations from that day forward. Their relationship is, is dissolved at that point in time. She despised, she criticized his worship of the Lord. She said, have a little more dignity. Have a little more self-respect. But I think the point of this all is that David's trying to show that as John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must what? He's got to increase. He's got to increase. As a church, as individuals, may it be never that we want people to pay attention to us. But let's get out of the way in humility and may it all be reflected back to the Lord. May he get the glory in what we do. It's about him. There's a humility in worship, but there's also an extravagance in the worship. Would you not agree this is a little bit of an extravagant procession? I mean, everything stopped. 862 Levites leading. David displaying. It said in the other passage you looked at that he danced with all his might. You're like, what did that look like? I'm not going to show you. I have no idea, all right? What did that, but, but he's just, he, he's giving it all in worship and praise to the Lord. So much so that somebody criticized him and said, boy, don't you think you're, you're kind of going overboard in your worship of the Lord? I've seen people worship God all kinds of different ways. Have you? Lots of different ways. Now, of course, the New Testament gives us some principles that everything that's done in the church needs to be done decently and in order. That's a prescription for worship, that if somebody were to come in and see your worship and your service, they should be able to understand what's going on, Right? But at the same time, I've seen people raise their hands in worship. I've seen people shout amen in worship. I've seen people stand up and praise the Lord in worship and sit back down. I've seen all kinds of expressions of worship. And you know what? I would be very, Lord help me to be very slow to criticize another person's expression of the worthiness of our great God. I'd be very, very slow to say, say, oh, they're just doing that for a show. Oh, I'd be slow to do that and say, just maybe, just maybe the Lord is in heaven smiling down at the extravagance of his worshiper. Amen? Just maybe. Maybe God's waiting for some of us to just loosen up a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just not be so stuffy about it, but let people know that our God is a great and worthy and mighty God, and that we want all the people of the world to know just how great and marvelous and magnificent He is. 
And if you do that by just singing a little bit louder, praise the Lord. If you do that by lifting a hand, praise the Lord. If you do that by shouting amen or hallelujah, Sylvia, you about scare me half to death every now and then up here when we're, when we're singing that song. But you know, it blesses my heart. Right? Just maybe, maybe, maybe over here, the Pharisee Michael is, is like, oh, come on. That's not how you do this. After all, we're Baptist Levites in here, you know? That's not how you do it. And maybe as she's over there scoffing, just maybe, just maybe her heaven, the Heavenly Father is looking down and saying, why don't you just be quiet? I'll take all that worship I can. Why don't, you just, why don't you just sit down and I'll take all that worship? You know, there's some, there's some you know, denominations. They don't do everything how, I don't believe they do everything that lines up with the Bible. There's things where they're off, but they love the Lord, they know the Lord, and they're not afraid to worship His holy name. The Bible says the Lord inhabits the praise of His people. The Lord says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And there's nothing wrong with some extravagance in our worship. There's nothing wrong in some extravagance in our singing. There's nothing wrong with some extravagance in our giving. There's no, nothing wrong with some extravagance in our worship attendance. You see what I'm saying? It, that extravagance extends into other areas besides just verbal ex, or physical expression. Because worship is all about our lives. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm going to have part in that special offering. You know what? I can... I, I'm going, to, I'm going to give extravagantly this time. Nothing wrong with, with saying, you know what, they're, they're having a missions conference in a few months. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to invest that whole weekend in that missions conference. I'm going to extravagantly give that to the Lord as a, as a time of worship. I'm going to go extravagant in my prayer. And I'm going to pray a little bit longer. David danced with all his might before the Lord. Oh, we need this, don't we? Coming right back at me here. We need this. Why? Because it results in joy in our lives. It brings joy to the... It's it's like our worship brings joy to the Father, and then He just pours the joy and gladness down into our hearts. There's a, a magnificent worship procession, and some people will criticize. Let them criticize. But David knew his heart. and David knew he had a heart for God. And he's just so glad. Listen... He's so glad he's not afraid of God anymore. Remember three months ago, he doesn't know if he can go this way or that way. He's afraid of God. But now that he's got in line with God's word, now that he, he's, he's given God first place, now he just is free in his expression to his, to his Savior. And then it comes to a worship ceremony in chapter 16. We're not going to read all of chapter 16, don't worry. But let's, let's look at what happens next. Chapter 16. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. And when David had made an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. This is really important. As, this, as, this, as the procession came to the ceremonies, they came to the place, the blood sacrifice happened first. There's a blood sacrifice central to all worship in the Old Testament and worship today. At the center of it all 
is the blood sacrifice. God taught his people in the Old Testament that he is a glorious, holy God, and they are unrighteous people. If they're going to come and worship him, what did they have to do first? They had to make a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And for them, it was a temporary covering for their sin. If they were going to approach God in the beauty of holiness, they must come with a sacrifice. And so blood would be shed. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. Blood would be shed, and then the people worship the Lord. Central to the Old Testament worship was the blood sacrifice. But can I share this with you this morning? Central to New Testament worship is the blood sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything we do, ladies and gentlemen, today centers, the center and the focal point of our worship is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all about the cross, that we, our unholy people, are made righteous worshipers because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So if we come and we sing to be uplifted or we, or we uh, fellowship because we have friends or all any of those things, those are just byproducts. Everything we do today and everything we do in our lives is focused on the fact that Jesus gave his life for us, the cross. The sacrifice is central to our worship. And you see that here, the significance of the, of the blood sacrifice. But when he's made the sacrifice, now look at verse 3. He dealt to everyone of Israel, man and woman, to everyone, a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh, a flagon of wine. He says, time to eat. It's time to eat. Isn't that interesting that this is recorded here? Right? I mean, we've been real spiritual up until now. Or are we still in a spiritual moment? I think we are. He says, listen, it's time for a celebration. It's time to enjoy the presence of God. And so he says, here, have some food. Enjoy a feast, enjoy a meal. And everybody gathers around. I mean, there's people everywhere. Where did David must have prepared for weeks for this? And he's like, here, you pass out bread to everybody. A whole loaf for me. The significance of that, I mean, you were, give us this day our daily bread. And they all come together and he says, you know, a a, a loaf of bread for every man and woman. And 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 give them something, a good piece of meat. And it says here the flagons of wine. You'll notice that that's a uh, at the time of the King James translation, that's in italics. They weren't exactly sure what that was. And newer studies seems to suggest that, that what that was was a, a cake that was, that was made. Very, very interesting. You can study that out on your own. But it was, whatever it was, it was a fruit of, of, of their fields and their vineyards, and it was sweet. That was dessert. Let's put it that way. And so they feast before the Lord. Listen, the fellowship of the saints is not secondary. It's primary. Sometimes we think, well, you know, we have fellowship, and we use fellowship kind of as a word for hanging out, right? But it's so much more than that. You and I, as we just spend time or share a meal together in the presence of the Lord, it's part of our worship. You say, well, how is that? 
not everyone has this blessing, but for those of you that have children, those of you that have grown children and families, isn't there something about the whole family gathering around for a meal? Right? We'll go back to Norman Rockwell's Thanksgiving picture, right? You can all picture that in your mind. You realize that God is pleased when his children spend time together. Think about Jesus. Come on in. Come in from the boat. Sit down. I've cooked some fish for you. How about these people are hungry. We need to give them some food. Where are we going to get it from? I'll take care of that. How about the wedding in Cana? We've run out of wine. Can't let that happen. These people are having too much fun. They're enjoying themselves too much. He turns the water into wine. How about in that great eternal day to come, we all sit down and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb? Because our worship is not just, it's it's relational. It's that God doesn't just just want us to say or, or to recognize His worth, but as the people of God come together, and whether it's a meal or conversation or fellowship, God wants his family together, and as his family gathers together, those are my children. They're mine. Then he writes a song of thankfulness, and we'll do this this psalm on Wednesday night, so I encourage you to come out Wednesday night. David writes a song, and they all sing the song. And then if you were to, I don't have time for this, but if you were to read further in chapter 16, David makes a plan to make sure that the worship doesn't stop. He says, I want this to continue. I want there to be a plan. The Lord says, come again. Gather again. Worship again. Don't let it stop. And just like the writer of Hebrews said, don't stop meeting together. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Why were we so burdened for the past year and a half? Because God wants his people to gather together and to worship him together. So much we learn about worship, but I want to leave you with this this morning. We always have to think about, we mentioned before, the centrality of Christ. The last thought is this, that Jesus is the center of our worship. Jesus is the center of our worship. And there's many people believe that this scripture, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, many people believe that this was one of the earliest songs that as the church would gather, they would sing together. Don't know that for sure, but many believe this was a song where they would sing, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything that we saw in David's worship, in the, wor- in the worship of the people. We have a fuller vision. We have a fuller understanding 
of who it is that we worship. And it is the highly exalted one, the one whose name is above every other name. Friends, it's not about us. It's all about him. May my life, may I exist to reflect maximum glory to that high and exalted one. So Christian, how is your worship? Does it extend beyond this Sunday morning and does it reach every aspect of your life? You make a commitment this morning to the Lord to realign a heart of worship. And then the question is this, there may be someone here or watching, who do you worship? Maybe you're not a true worshiper of Jesus. Everyone worships something. And for many people, the God they worship is the God of self. We, we read that scripture, Jesus equal with God. He humbles himself to give us salvation. If Jesus was willing to humble himself, to go to the cross, to give his life for us, are you willing to humble yourself and receive him by faith? To say, it's not about my church or my religion or my performance. It's about the fact that I am unworthy, but the worthy one gave himself for me. Have you received Christ by faith? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to a time of prayer this morning. Jesus is the worthy one. So the question we asked is, how is your worship today? How is your worship? If you'd say, you know, I need to get some things straight in my life. I need to, I need to realign my purpose with his purpose. This is an opportunity now for you to do that. The end of the service, as we go to prayer, this is an opportunity for you to respond, for you to respond in worship to the Lord. And if there's never been a time in your life where you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, why don't you do that this morning? Whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching online, have you received Christ? You'd say, I'd like to do that today. I don't want to worship any. I don't want to worship myself. I don't want to worship anything else. I'll humble myself. I'll believe. Yes, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I'll trust him by faith. If you've never done that, why don't you ask Christ to save you today? As the musicians play, let's just have a time of quiet prayer. If you're a Christian, speak to the Lord. If you've never received Christ, ask him to be your savior today. Lord, we do, as the song says, we thank you for the cross this morning. May we conclude this morning, Lord, by just singing with all our might, with all our hearts, to your great and glorious name. And may this week, may our lives reflect your glory. May we bow down our hearts to you. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.